you're listening to Death of the Reader. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have an extended version of our chat with Catherine Noski regarding her wonderful novel, The Salt Madonna. Catherine is an academic and author from the University of Western Australia. We brought on this novel to talk a little bit more about island fiction and how spooky and well-planned out they have to be. I hope you enjoy this. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Catherine, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Thank you. It's lovely to be joining you guys. It's great to have you on the show. On the show here, we like to tackle complicated stories that their authors have spent months and years poring over in order to get the puzzle just right. Uh, Catherine, it took you over a decade to put together this uh, this manuscript of a book. Uh, we, we, we dealt with many island-bound stories uh, recently in Death of the Reader, and, and it seems that the story of an isolated island takes a, a lot longer in the oven than most stories. Uh, what is it about their tight confines that pulls out the inner perfectionists of the authors that write island stories? Um, I, I look, I think partly it's the challenge of writing an island. An island is a, a complex place. It's a world in microcosm in a sense. And, uh, you know, you you have the sort of classic crime scenario of the locked room. Um, Writing an island is is writing a locked world in a a certain way. It's got to be rich and complex enough to to hold itself up. And imagining your way into that space takes time. Living with that space, I think, is is the most wonderful way to write. So, uh, look, partly for me it was a long, slow process by dint of of the nature of how I was writing and why I was writing. It, It started as my PhD. Um, but, uh, you know, too, it, it, it was a, a project and a book and a story that, that needed time and needed space to really come into its own as a world. I feel like with a lot of the characters, we only ever see glimpses of who they truly are, you know, through the narrative. Do you feel like you know them intimately, like you've, you've lived on the island yourself? Is that the impression you have? Or Some of them, yeah. Look, it, I, I definitely spent a lot of time um, imaginatively in that space. It, it did take me almost 10 years in, in the writing. So it, it was, it's a long time to live with characters. Um, and, and partly, too, it was, it was based uh, roughly and, and loosely in the, the space I grew up in, uh, a small country town in southwest Victoria. So it, it drew a lot from memory and from the experience of, of that sort of geography and of that world. Um, but yeah, some of the characters I, I definitely feel like I know more intimately than they might um, they might have space in the book, and and other characters still you know still elusive to me in some ways, but still people I feel like I could spend more time with. Yeah, I suppose the interesting thing that comes to mind is in murder mystery we strive to battle with the author, attempting to predict the outcomes of stories before the author can swing the final scythe. And in The Salt Madonna, I felt as though the story was laid out before me pretty early on with the majority of the page space spent exploring the characters and the minutiae of the situation, much like how Christie kind of dangles the outcome before the audience with the poem in And Then There Were None, which we're talking about today. So why use inevitability to propel a story that's so clearly about the unknown? Uh, because I never really set out to write a crime novel, to be honest. It, um, and it wasn't a novel where I ever wanted the, the whodunit factor to, to be coming into play. Uh, it was definitely always a novel where I wanted the reader to be wondering why and how things happen rather than, you know, what and who. Um, and and because of that too, the, the real driving force for me in the story was how community functions and 
how these interpersonal relationships in a small town, in a small community, can have sort of ripple effects through a person's life and through the way they, they tell their story. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I the story that comes to mind, we spoke with uh, Emma Stonex about the Lamplighters recently, two very similar stories about small communities impacted on the edge of the sea and their isolation. And the kind of balance that both of these stories strike in how they portray those small communities, I thought was uh, particularly interesting. So what kind of drew you to that motion of the sea? You mentioned that it was part of the small town that you grew up in, but why does this image of the ocean uh, compel you in putting this story around it? Yeah, it was largely where I, partly based on, on where I grew up and, and how that landscape, I feel, has you know been a very important one to me. And, you know, I, I grew up in the bush near the coast, so there was sort of that duality for me of, of feeling like I belonged to a bush landscape as well as a coast landscape. Um, but I think, too, for me, there is beyond the obvious symbolism of, of water and, and the sea being, you know, fickle and, and uh, dangerous and, and potentially um, sublime as well. There was also the idea of, of salt in particular, obviously part of the title, but just that importance of salt as something that preserves uh, but also corrodes and, and those really rich and interesting dualities in the symbolism of, of salt water specifically. To to dive into the sort of I, I guess the structure of the story, I I really enjoyed the framing device of our protagonist, and I use that term so loosely given how many perspectives we have that we jump between. Uh, Hannah recollecting the events of the story almost like a diary um, of what occurred during her return trip to look after her her dying mother on the storm battered island of Chesil. Th- this trope of a fictional character writing their own story has always uh, fascinated me ever since I read a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Uh, Hannah, she seems to be working through her own feelings of, of powerlessness and regret for her sin or, or her trauma, perhaps, or, of inaction. Uh, in, in your own words, how does that relate to the the sort of overarching thesis of the novel? Uh, to me, that was all tied in with the idea of the sort of gothic subconscious uh, and and the way in which so the, the gothic for me was a really important um, sort of area of research when I was working on this as my PhD, and and Hannah's sort of loss in the past in the same way the the subconscious functions in the gothic as this sort of well or place uh, of of trauma that is unresolved and uh, live and um, you know unrelentingly erupts into the moment and and into the day to day. Um, so th- this idea of memory and of diary and of being caught across two times and, and two sort of uh, structures of, of tense in the novel as well. So Hannah's, Hannah's writing in the first person and then we're imagining other characters in third person. Uh, that for me was all really tied into that idea of, of being sort of caught in another time, being caught in one's own history and, and unable to move past that. Yeah, I, I really like there that, you know, on that note, Hannah even chastises herself at one point. Uh, for the admitted sin of portraying Mary, who occupies a position like a damsel in a story, is completely powerless, becoming a puppet for the townspeople. However, the story is predominantly told by groups outside of the adult men. Um, Other than that one scene from the perspective of the bull, the story is told by daughters, mothers, children, and an old pastor losing his mind. Why tell a story of a damsel in distress that is so actively absent of the male gaze? What do we stand to learn from bending that typically patronizing narrative? Oh, I like that question. Women... Women in female perspectives were, were really important to me. They they were very much at the centre of it. But more specifically within that, I, there was I wanted to sort of hit a balance between um, speaking about trauma and speaking about 
you know, the sort of suppressed crimes that, that we have in our history as a society in our in our contemporary moment too, really. So, yeah, a balance between speaking about that trauma and, and speaking over it or for it. So wanting to acknowledge that, you know, some things are impossible to speak, some things are, are really hard to represent in writing and that people, you know, often aren't empowered, don't have a voice, so can't speak their own trauma in ways that is listened to or acknowledged. So for me, writing around uh, what happens to Mary was the only way to represent that in the book. It's sort of a Mary-shaped hole in the middle of the text. I, I thought that was really powerful. How do I express this? I thought it was really powerful reading about Mary without, we don't really see her perspective after she she loses her agency in a very real sense um, and there are sins that are committed on the island that are core to the story that are never really exposed either. I find it interesting. You, you contrast the um, the emotional bearing of the heart of Hannah through the story with uh, one of her ancestors who wrote reports uh, when the island was first colonized about you know seeing the animals and counting the indigenous population. I guess my my question is um, is is Hannah doing something healthy in the way that she's trying to portray these events? Is this is this a helpful thing for her to do in, in your mind? Uh, no, I, I don't know that you'd call it healthy. I think you would call it compulsive. But also, I think you'd, you'd probably say that in some ways, there's you know there is a reckoning with the past that is still to come and and needs to happen slowly but surely in our society in terms of colonialism and decolonizing uh, our contemporary world, uh, which, you know, for, for a white person is always going to be difficult uh, to do in ways that are healthy because it, that, that's a process that needs to be led by Indigenous voices and Indigenous speakers. We need to, you know, take the position of ethically listening and remove ourselves from action in some ways from that process. Uh, and I think Hannah is sort of caught in the challenge of, of both wanting uh, to enact that reckoning and being unable to do so without causing more harm herself in some ways. Yeah, I really like the way that you frame that as like a compulsion because, you know, there's definitely, I guess, a, a desire to to right wrongs, but also that contrast in terms of how that actually plays out when you put it into the social and historical context, both in the novel and with the more broad social issues you mentioned there. Yeah, and and there there are some some elements in the book there that, you know, I I don't know that I did particularly well, to be honest. But there are some things that need a lot of thinking about in ways that are respectful and ways that are productive. Uh, but for me, Hannah was sort of epitomising that that sense of being trapped in one's own history and uh, in the acknowledgement of, of having caused and created trauma uh, as a society and, and not knowing how to get past that or not knowing how to, you know, move forward in in a way that won't perpetuate yeah. trauma. I feel like that desire to depict the truth and to de depict things respectfully is very well, very well channeled, I would say, through the character of Hannah throughout the story. Now, uh, Catherine, I have to admit uh, that I, I love a good cult in a story, in a story <laughs> of fiction, and your novel does such an excellent job of showing, you know, mostly reasonable human beings growing into madness um, from one very simple sin that occurs about halfway through the book. Um, I have to ask, do you think you let the townspeople off 
just a little bit easy for the terrible atrocities that they brought to bear on the young people of the town. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, look, and, and it's funny that you use the word sin there as well in the sense that to me was was part of why I got so fascinated by this idea of, of cults when I was writing and I did a lot of reading around that. So, I mean, some of my favourite cult novels are Randolph Stowe's Tourmaline and uh, Laura Elizabeth Willett's um, Beautiful Revolutionary. There's some amazing narratives there of how a cult sweeps up and carries on in its own way. And, yeah, so in that sense, the, the collective madness was sort of reckoned with in a way that individual uh, crime or individual, you know, sin, I suppose you could say, is is um, not uh, ever um, but I think that's something that we need to deal with socially as well. You know, we 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 have grand gestures in our society towards acknowledging trauma or acknowledging crimes, but we don't always um, do so well at, at actually uh, dealing with the individual perpetrators or recognising individual fault. Yeah, I, I enjoy using the word sin. I, I've had a look at some of the other sort of interviews and articles written about your book. And most people use the word trauma to describe, you know, the, the bad things that happen and the way that you approach those. And I think that's that's true and real. But I I just enjoy thinking about it in terms of sin, because obviously a very, a very biblically charged book. And I I like thinking about the idea that depending on your interpretation of the ending of this novel, not to spoil too much, but the amount of death that actually occurs in the story is very low. Some might say that that's a good thing that these characters weren't punished more than they they should have been. You know that that the the punishment of the sin is is not that important compared to the human life that has been saved by the end of the novel uh, by what one might call a sacrifice at the very end. Um, I don't know. I'm dancing around the the point of it a little bit. I don't want to completely ruin no, the think- novel for those who aren't who haven't read it, but. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Is that something you kind of thought about when you were writing the book? Is that part of your thought process? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and you know, finding a way to end it was probably the most difficult element of the writing. Um, and it's it's definitely, you know, something that, I, you know, I could rewrite the second half of that book, I think, 100 times over and still not really be happy with, with what I've done. Um, but, no, I think sin has an interesting layering of personal responsibility to it as a word. And, you know, we, we tend to push aside language uh, which has heavy religious connotations because it's difficult in some ways to to use that language in a secular world. But uh, there is, you know, in in some ways a real merit to using language which uh, recognises that trauma has been caused by someone or through action. Uh, And and that was definitely part of what I wanted the book to, to speak to, that you know, whether it was collective or individual or however you want to approach what happens in the novel and the violence that's done, there is a, a layering here of, you know, not only the perpetrator uh, who has committed this crime, but also the community which has enabled it, which allows it, uh, which leads into it and um, which effectively sort of quiets it afterwards or, or tries to ignore it. So, yeah, that, that balancing of, of acknowledgement of guilt was really hard to write. Yeah, there was one other thing I wanted to ask, and this maybe is going to be a point you're going to have to help elucidate for me because you, you were kind of talking to, uh, to me about this before we began the interview, Ben, Uh-oh. Uh, in that talking about that idea of accepting what's happened and reflecting on the past, uh, you were talking about how like horses uh, are, an impor- are an important idea in terms of the way that they see more than 
than we do, the way that their memory works compared to us. I don't know if you I, have a better way to elucidate um, this question, Hurd. Okay, but- my understanding is, from what I've read, uh, Catherine, is that you you have incorporated some, a lot of your own experience with horses into your work. It's this idea that horses, you know, they see and they experience a lot more than their riders do. And in my mind, that ties in with the fact that, you know, uh, the kids in the town know things that the adults don't. And the adults should know more than the kids do. And all these different characters that, you know, don't, they don't take that personal responsibility seriously. And they either don't know how to, or they're incapable of, you know, using everything that they know to, to bring something right into the world. I guess how, first off, how on the ball am I? And second off, <laughs> <laughs> how has your, your experience with horses and your experience um, you know, growing up in that environment uh, Im- impacted the novel, I guess, uh, kind of broadly. Yeah, you're completely on the ball. That's that's Good. one of the best readings I've had. Thank you. Um, no, it, horses, horses. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a pearl. I'm completely obsessed with horses. I'm not ashamed to admit that. And if I can find a way to work them into my writing, there's probably going to be a horse in there somewhere. But um, no, the horses for me were not just not just um, personal indulgence. It was definitely indulgence, but they weren't just personal indulgence. Uh, they were, again, pointing to that idea of the subconscious, and, and you're absolutely right that there's that layering of the idea that, you know, the horse, um, you, you can't lie to a horse, you can't lie to any animal, but a horse is an animal with which you have an intimate relationship, you work together, uh, and when you're riding a horse, there is an element of communication that goes beyond the conscious. It's physical, it's instinctive. Uh, so a horse um, is always going to reflect you know, yourself, what you're feeling, what you're doing back to you in the way in which it responds to you. Um, so horses for me as a, as a symbol in the in the book were all about uh, sort of shaping and showing how the emotional, how uh, the subconscious is is at play in a community and, and in a person's experience of trauma. All, all I will say is that it's, it's a good thing that you had all those other characters in the book because I think maybe... Seventy percent of Hannah's time narrating the story is spent <laughs> either writing or talking about horses. Um, I, I felt there, as though there might be elements of self-portraiture there. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, I felt as though Hannah's, you know, desire. I mean, even towards the end of the book, she's like, "I'm just going to go ride on the horse." She's kind of using it as a form of escapism, just find something else to do. Yeah. I know. I just, I really enjoyed that. I don't have a question there. I just really enjoyed that. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, I suppose on that front, we will uh, wrap it there. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's been lovely. Thanks for the chat. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Catherine Noski there talking about the Salt Madonna. We will have links up on the podcast if you want to get yourself a copy of that book, and we can thoroughly recommend it. Thanks ever so much for joining us here on the podcast, and we'll see you another time on Death of the Reader. Death of the Reader.